0: It's vitally important that none suspect who I am nor what my purpose is until my plans have all been completed and then it will be too late for anyone to stop me And welcome to season two, episode seven of Me and My Friend Pete, another Donuts and Dimes production, the podcast that explores all things the amazing Spider Man. I'm your host, Peter Parker's persnickety pal, Gerald. If this is your first time with us, welcome. If it isn't, welcome three times and back once. This week, we're running through the amazing Spider Man number 31, If This Be My Destiny. Chapter one of a three-part tale considered by many to be not only one of Spidey's greatest yarns, but one of the greatest stories in comics history, period. Spidey already gained rookie of the year when he swung onto the scene in 1962. And here, at the end of 1965, he caps off his first MVP season, in my opinion, with a tale so awesome, even moving into it slow, we've got our foot on the gas. In this, the first tale, in Amazing Spider-Man Masterworks, volume four we've got pete's first week of college two new spidey characters that can only be described as wait for it legendary in the spider-man mythos we've got aunt May back in the hospital with the bills piling up a master planner we haven't seen and more purple clad men than a prince convention in minnesota and we've got me we've got you we've got no further ado we've got ze Amazing Spider-Man, number 31, If This Be My Destiny. I say I meet it head on. Let's swing. Me and my best friend Pete, old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs, I spin yarns, kinda kooky, be forewarned. Look out, it's me and my friend Pete. The credits. We have a masterful script by Stan Lee, magnificent artwork by Steve Ditko, and minifluous lettering by Sam Rosen. So yes, this is another S and S and S production. The cover. The entire cover of ASM number 31 is bathed in a Spidey costume red backdrop. On the top of the page, we get THE Amazing Spider-Man and Spidey New Roman, shade white with navy blue shading Spidey's name. Under this, we get the title of this masterpiece and a navy blue banner caption box, the words written in goldenrod yellow. If this be my destiny. Beneath this, at the center of the page is Spidey's head, staring straight at us, surrounded by a large white spider, much like the red spider symbol on the back of his costume. This spider is gigantic. The legs stretch out to the edges of the cover on both sides. Between the legs, we've got scenes of action abounding. Between the first and second leg, stage right, we see one of the goons I assumed were working for the cat last issue in a full body suit, shade dark blue, and on his face, that same creepy mask with the weird mouth that reminds me of a gas mask. The space around his mouth and eyes is outlined in sky blue. This guy's got sky blue gloves to match the outlining on his face, his right fist clenched, and in his left fist, he's holding a futuristic gun aimed and shooting what looks like fire at the webhead's dome. Between the second and third spider's legs, we get a scene of the Golden Liability, suited, booted, and in action. He's got his arms outstretched, high above the city we know and love, both his palms flat against the underside of a green whirly bird. Between the third and fourth spider's legs, we see Spidey Aquatica. He's beneath a body of water, probably the East River, because it's always the East River. Arms wide, swimming fast as fish dart past him near his feet and above his head. Stage left, inside the spider's legs, we've got more action as Spidey, gripping a web line with his right hand, his left fist clenched above his head, swings towards a gang of the blue clad henchmen who have their backs to us, fists clenched, and guns drawn. Between the second and third legs, Spidey's trapped in a fisherman style net, both his fists clenched, struggling against its cords. And finally, Between the third and fourth legs of this action-packed spider, we've got one of the henchmen beneath the same pool of water as Spidey swimming towards us, bubbles rising from his aqualung as fish swim around him. All this action on the cover, you know we gotta see what's next. Let's get into it. Page one opens to the sign of the spider. But no! Just a goldenrod yellow banner with the words, The Amazing Spider-Man. The Amazing is written in black letters, Spider-Man in a bright green. Beneath this, in a white banner written in large red letters, we get the title of this one. If this be my destiny. Stage right in a goldenrod circle caption box, we get no lies told. A new era in the life of Spider-Man is about to begin, and you shall live it with him. And finally, we get a scene we can make some sense of. In front of a large metal freighter held together by rivets punched in square panels, above a loading dock painted green, we see Spider-Man, both hands above and behind his head, Gripping a cargo net wrapping an oblong shaped I don't know what attached to a cargo boom. He's got both legs out in front of him, and he's swinging from stage left to right as three goons, the same goons from the cover, but they've traded out their dark and light blue uniforms for purple and lavender, the same costumes they were wearing last issue. There are four on scene here, one three-fifths of his body on its knees, his face and left arm off panel stage left as he dodges Spidey swinging through. There's another stage left, he's got his body weight back on his right foot, he's got his left foot kicked out in front of him, his left hand is thrown up, this man looks like he's just hopped up from a Russian squad dance, but this dance is dangerous, because he's got a gun in his hand, and he's spraying a mist of green gas at the webhead. but he's not the only one, stage right, dancing out of the way of Spidey's feet with his back to us, another henchman has a gun raised, spraying that same lime green mist, and directly in front of the large ship. Center of the page, the only person without fear of being bowled over by our hero. A fourth henchman stands facing us, his right hand raised. He's spraying green mist from a gun in his hand at the amazing Spider-Man. My people, if there's smoke in the air, then that means that Pete Parker's in here. Shout out to Mel Cipher. We turn the page. Page two opens with a caption box. In the dead of night, a team of strangely garbed men descends upon a plant which produces radioactive atomic devices. And four purple and lavender clad mass men descend a brown rope in single file towards a futuristic looking plant, shaded sky blue. The goon at the top of the rope screaming down to his cohorts that their timetable is perfect and they'll be finished in exactly four and a half minutes. GC, put it on the clock. The next panel, we see the men have found what they came for as two of the goons push two waist high gray futuristic devices that look like R2-D2 without its legs from stage right to left on dollies towards the last goon still gripping the rope line. The goon in the lead on the ground tells the guy on the rope to hit the signal. And he does. Raising his right hand, he flashes a light towards the sky saying they've still got 30 seconds to spare. Big man, eat your heart out. But no! A brown-haired guard in a blue suit, yellow badge on his right arm, arrives on the scene in the next panel, gun drawn. <laughs> That's a revolver snub nose, aka the messmaker. This guard's not playing around. He screams, what's going on? But as the purple city goonies race for the chopper the trailer that's the last guy gun drawn spins and sprays lime green gas into the guard's face saying this should cure the man's curiosity standing beside the whirly bird that's landed but still has its rotor spinning number two says oh yeah get aboard our strategy was 100 effective 100 percent effective eat your heart out latex companies but Due to the fact that another nocturnal visitor happens to be in the same area, the percentage is whittled down just a bit. The other nocturnal visitor, the Golden Liability, who, suited and booted, bounces off a narrow dome top pillar, both arms wide towards the chopper. And Spidey, in a rare moment of silence, isn't giving the game away with a monologue. He's thinking that whoever these goons are, they couldn't have been up to anything good. So their friendly neighborhood Spider-Man will just tag along. We get a gorgeous panel of the chopper from a three-quarter angle, speeding stage right of the panel, as Spidey's hands stick to its undercarriage. And this chopper's gotta cost something. It's got golden, mirrored tint on the front window. Probably to reflect the sun moonlight, so we know it ain't cheap. And fun fact, astronauts' helmets all come equipped with gold tinted visors for this very same reason, to block the sun. So I'm not just talking out of the side of my mouth. And Spidey knows this thing costs. He thinks, Any crooks who can afford a getaway vehicle like this must be real operators. It's nice to know I'm swinging in the big time. The amazing Spider-Man swinging in the big time. Before flipping into the carriage door of the cockpit, feet in front of him, kicking it down easily with a loud zoom. And kaboom, guess who swung in the room. There are five goons inside of this carriage. We get a shot of three of them as the one facing us, his head looking over his shoulder, stands with half his body in stage right shouting, It's Spider-Man! And you know the King of Thwip always comes with quips. Give the Jen a cigar. He just said the magic word. The goon closest to stage left replies that Spidey's bitten off more than he can chew. And we've got action. Page three opens with the goons getting right to work. They all advance towards Spidey, the one closest to stage right, shouting for the guy to his right, only an arm from this angle, to give Spidey a shot of the sleeping gas, And he does. The cabin fills with lime green smoke as a third goon Closest to the chopper's broken exit door leaps onto Spidey's back, shouting for them to hurry, because it'd take an army to hold the one-man army from Forest Hills, Queens. And he's right, because as he says this, Spidey leans into a punch, sending a fourth goon, who's just raised his hand to spray gas from his gun, flying towards the opposite end of the cramped space. Spidey thinking, good thing the idiots were shouting out their plans because it gave him time to get a nice, full gulp of air. And in the next panel, shrouded in gas, Spidey reminds us that he can hold his breath longer than most people expect. That's about four and a half minutes, and proceeds to punch the clock. The goon who runs at him, he's gripping Spidey's waist, legs dangling behind him, stage left, as Spidey clubs another goon with a downward left, and with the most effortless toss I've ever seen, sends a third flying with a literal ah. flick of the flick of the wrist while the fourth goon closes in behind our hero, still pumping gas into the room. Quiet at the rear of the plane. As green smoke begins to waft towards the back of the whirly bird, number two, a headset wrapping his gas mask face, is seated on a green stool, punching buttons and turning dials on the large communicator we saw him using in the back of the van last issue. And it's right now that I realize that these guys weren't pulling the heist for the cat at all, because he's saying he's just got a message from their boss to execute emergency plan G to foil Spider-Man. A goon in the foreground shouts, will do. Within seconds, the stolen devices are encased in waterproof covers with electronic signaling devices attached. And on number two's orders, we see the goon and another, how many goons are in this chopper? Wrapping their stolen R2D2s in tarps. One says everything's ready and the other shouts to carry out plan G. And as Spidey still battles ferociously at the other end of the ship, We're outside of the chopper now, and we see where it was headed. Over a body of water near a pier where a large building sits in the foreground stage right. You know I'm guessing it's the East River, because it's always the East River. And the two goons push the stolen devices from the chopper and into the water below. Then, from a hidden underwater base, some distance away, a crisp order is barked. This base beneath the waves looks like it's been designed using concrete, has a large dome capping its squared foundation, and whoever this guy running the show is, he knows the first rule of real estate. Location, location, location. This cannot be an easy base to get to. And inside of the base, this someone shouts, Attention, Task Force R. Retrieve jettison units and stand by. Silently, unhesitatingly, like awesome underwater ghosts. A small group of identically garbed swimmers leave the strange submerged structure a small circular entrance opens on the side of this underwater base and two goons in scuba gear swim out of this opening the one in the front shouting that their course is due east by northeast and scant minutes later now there are six goons in the water and they're all swimming towards the stolen devices which have settled at the bottom of the river while Back aboard the helicopter. A goon behind Spidey shouts for his partner to spray more gas into the already gas filled room to open page four and says that Spidey can't hold his breath forever. It's the only way he can beat him. He may be right, but I'm starting to think all the gas in the world won't help because Spidey gets low, throws two more fists, and two goons go flying in opposite directions crashing into the walls of the chopper. Spidey races forward next and knocking a goon backwards with a right in the next panel Still hasn't said a word, as all around him, we see the tips of gas pistols just pumping Ryan Green into the small space. The Golden Liability may not be talking, but his thoughts are filling the chamber almost as much as the gas does. But he's right. The fumes are finally making me groggy I'd love to impress him with my wit, but I don't dare open my mouth to say anything. Oh well, it's their it's loss. He may be quipping in his mind, but that four minutes is almost up and covering his eyes in the next panel, he thinks the room is starting to spin, that he can't afford to take any more chances and has to end this fast. Spraying webbing from his right web shooter towards the kicked-in door of the copter, he swings the entire door outside of the Spidey-Made opening and into the rotors of the Whirling Bird thinking now the goons have nowhere to go but down. But they ain't the only ones, because number two seizes on Spidey's distraction, and bracing against the opening of the chopper, he shouts, This'll finish him off! And leans into a punch as another goon does the same from the opposite opening. Both fists connect with the webhead, who already lightheaded from the gas, can't defend himself and he tumbles out of the copter towards the river below. But in free fall, his head towards the river, the destroyed chopper falling above him, Spidey's got his bearings. He shouts, The rush of air cleared my head, but The ship, it's falling right on top of me. Gotta hit it with webbing. If I can just swing away in time. Here goes nothing. And sprays the webline from each shooter, snagging the front of the falling helicopter. Five opens to a gorgeous panel of Spidey using his momentum and the spring of his webbing to slingshot himself out of the way of the whirlybird as it crashes into the East river, shouting the whole time about how he loves that good old Spidey agility. I mean, it is best ever. And... Just below the surface, a special rescue squad takes the crewmen safely from the downed helicopter. We get another great panel, this time of the goons who retrieve the stolen devices, sharing the air from their aqualungs with number two and the other thieves from the chopper, all of them swimming towards the underwater base where the master planner is waiting. Spidey, bobbing in the water near the pier, has been waiting for the henchmen to surface, but when none do... He says even though they deserve it, he can't let them drown, and dies beneath the waves to save them. He swims in the water and through the openings of the sunken chopper, again breaking the rules of basic human anatomy, shouting beneath the waves. I don't get it! It's completely empty! Heading back to the surface, he braces his left hand on the leg of a pier, scratches his masked head with his right hand, and monologues his confusion. Now I've seen everything! I know I didn't just dream the whole thing, and yet, where could they have gone? I thought I was supposed to be the mystery man around here. If the world's most tempestuous teenager is non now, imagine how he'd feel if he could know of the incredible building, which exists just a short distance away, beneath the murky, all-concealing waters. And inside the underwater base, the mastermind is monologuing, saying he didn't expect Spider-Man to get involved, and by an accident, the web had almost ruined his plans again, that he has to be more careful in the future. Whoever this mastermind is, clearly ain't putting respect on Spidey's name. Villains have to know at this point that Spidey goes on patrol at least once a day, usually at night. Either way, in a beautiful final panel, we see the secret base straight on at the center of one-point perspective. Its underwater passageway extends towards us and bubbles are racing towards the surface from a grate in the base of a brick wall that the passageway connects with. Maybe the entrance of the structure, we don't know yet, as the mastermind continues speaking in a large pink dialogue box. It is vitally important that none suspect who I am, nor what my purpose is until my plans have all been completed, and then it will be too late for anyone to stop me. Whoever this mastermind is, he's got goons, he's got the hardware, and clearly he's got the cash, so I can only imagine what his plans are. The next morning, Peter Parker bids his doting Aunt May goodbye as he heads for the campus of Empire State University. And we see Pete Parker in his alternate Goldenrod Kid outfit. That's why button up. SJBs, and Goldenrod Parker vest with horizontal lines. The vest is open, of course. He's heading towards the front door as May, in her green full-length dress and white apron, stands at the entrance to the kitchen behind him. Pete's saying he's gotta run because today is college registration. May wishes him luck, hoping that he's pleased with his schedule. In the next panel, May, her right hand on her collarbone, watches Pete through the window, thinking about her favorite nephew. He's He's just just like his father, father. cheerful, Cheerful, enthusiastic, enthusiastic, and bright. He's been He's like, been a, like son a son to me, to me all these years. Jesus. But as she continues her thoughts in the next panel, sweat breaks out near her temples and in a red negative space, her hand goes to her forehead. She lowers her long face and continues her thought. And he, he was, was so, happy so happy that I didn't, have, I didn't have the heart to spoil it, it. By, by telling him how very, very Ill, Ill I've been, I've been feeling. feeling. Pete and May too often go out of their way to protect the emotions of one another. That's gonna hurt them in a bit, but for now, let's get back to. For the next few hours, Peter Parker is kept so busy that he hasn't the time to think of his Aunt May, of the strange happenings of last night, or of anything save the dawning of a new and exciting campus career. And we get still shots of Pete busy getting it done at State University. In the center of this oversized panel, we get a smiling headshot of the goldenrod kid, Peter Parker, in front of Empire State University, a large white brick building with an American flag billowing on its crown atop the main building. Going clockwise from top left, we see a brown-haired dean with his back to us, addressing an auditorium full of students, welcoming them to ESU and letting them know they're about to embark on a journey of academics that'll be richly rewarding if they do the work. Beside this, we see Pete standing beside a red-headed woman, beside a brown-haired man, beside an auburn-haired man. They're all young adults, and they're standing in front of a professor in a dark brown suit. I imagine it's Tweed. He's got Veronica-colored hair. He's leaning with his left hand on the chemistry set and telling the students that they, being science majors, are going to spend a lot of time in this lab and others, so if they have any questions, they shouldn't hesitate to ask. Next, we see the goldenrod kid sitting at a glass top table, filling out paperwork with a scowl on his face. And Pete's thoughts are much like mine when I was registering for college. Wow! I've never filled out so many cards and forms in my life! And the only things that don't have to be signed in duplicate are the ones that have to be done in triplicate! And next, Pete's looking over his shoulder at the greatest athlete Midtown High has ever seen. Here on an academic scholarship, Flash fashion on Trash Thompson in a green vest and white collared shirt. He's staring over his shoulder at Pete, and of course, he's not happy. But Pete is, smiling. He says, well, well, if it isn't fearless, Flash Thompson. And Flash returns a salutation with one of his own. Drop dead. Beneath this we see Pete taking a moment to crash in an armchair, his legs out in front of him, right arm draping the arm of the chair, the back of his left hand on his forehead. He says he's bushed, and he hasn't even started yet, but he's having a ball. And he's back to work in the next panel at the front of the line for books, where a woman with brown hair and a green dress piles them on him. He's holding no less than seven thick, bound, scholarly tomes, and she tells Pete, who's frowning like, come on, that he can pick up the rest tomorrow. Pete says it'd be easier to move into the library. He's seated at a desk in the panel to the left of this, bracing his face on his left hand. As a blonde counselor in a red, high-collar shirt, asks him if he has any questions about his schedule. Pete replies, millions of them. And finally, to the left of this, we have Pete standing on the back of the line for registration that snakes off towards the dean at the top of the panel, his hands on his hips, as he wonders if they have a course and waiting in line. I love that this art seems to go around in a loop, showing how draining a first day of college can be, Just endless lines and forms and people talking about how seriously you have to take your life now. I went to college relatively late in life, and it was still an annoyance. So I can only imagine how, despite exciting, tiring it could be for a person in their late teens or early 20s. (laughs) Making that puzzle of a schedule alone was frustrating as hell. Finally, as Peter prepares for a good night's sleep before the first day of school. May and Pete are in the den to open page 7. She's in her green dress behind Pete, no apron, pointing a finger matter-of-factly at him. He's in a form fitting goldenrod sweater and SJB standing in front of a desk lamp reading a book. I'm sure it's one of his new college textbooks. And May's telling him she's getting up early to make him breakfast for his first day of school. Pete tells her she doesn't need to do that, that she needs her rest. And May says nonsense before stars dance around her head and she pitches forward in a red negative space. Pete shouts, Oh, May, what's wrong? And in one bound is across the room to grab her ha! as she collapses in his arms unconscious as he screams that he's got to get a doctor now. A half hour later. Pete's done exactly that, and we see a light brown-haired doctor in an olive suit, white shirt, light blue tie, standing over May who's laying down on her bed. The doctor, pressing his stethoscope, what a word, into May's chest, tells Pete he can come in. And Pete does, asking how May is. The doctor says May's very weak. He turns to face Pete in the next panel, continuing. I'm not quite sure what's wrong, but at her age, we can't afford to take any chances. I'll send for the ambulance. Beats like, ambulance? What? The doctor walks over to the phone in the gutter between panels and dials the hospital in the next continuing. Yes, Peter. You'll have to go to the hospital for special tests. Hello, this is Dr. Bromwell. Connect me with admitting, please. So you know he's Bromwell by name, Brom very well by reputation. Yeah, baby, yeah. And as I mentioned way back in, there ain't no punchlines to fist flying. That's ASM number nine. The man called Electro. Going to the hospital was still a relatively new and scary idea around this time. So we know if May has to go, this is serious business. Back to. Then, after a swift ambulance ride. We're in a hospital room where a red-haired nurse in a white nurse's gown is standing in front of a tray of medicine. She's looking over her shoulder at May, who's laying down in a blue hospital gown, holding Peter's hand. And stage left, we have a dark red-haired doctor in his doctor's coat. The nurse says May's doing better that the medication helped, as May stirs. Of course she calls for Pete, and of course he's already by her side, taking her hand. The doctor tells Pete to go easy, that he doesn't want to tire her out. In the final panel, both men stand over May, the doctor telling her to get some rest, as May says she will, but she's still, as usual, more focused on Pete, saying he's such a poor boy because his first day of school is tomorrow, and he should be sleeping, not up with her in the hospital, Pete replies in goldenrod fashion. Don't you worry about me, Aunt May. Just you rest and get your strength back, here? I'll be just fine. We turn the page and we're on...
1: The Infinity, 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 page.
0: Page Page 8. Just in time, the witness may tell Pete, Of course you will, dear. You've always been fine. Best nephew a person could wish for. So decent. And truthful. So... (laughs) She loves this kid. She dozes off and Pete begins his solitary walk home. His head down, hands in pocket beneath the yellow moon partially blocked by cloud cover. Pete's thinking, Some fine nephew I've been. I didn't even suspect she was ill. I was so So wrapped up in my own affairs that I hardly ever gave her a thought. He makes it home. And finally, as dawn slowly breaks, we find Pete sitting crestfallen in a chair in the den by the phone as the sun rises in red and pink hues, casting him in a pink glow as he stares out the window in this panel. And in the quiet of the house, Pete's thoughts are loud. I couldn't sleep a wink. Couldn't get Aunt May, May out of my, of my mind. mind. I've taken her for granted all these years. She's been like a mother to me, and I hardly gave her the time of day. Thus, weary from lack of sleep and heartsick with worry about his aunt's illness, the world's most amazing teenager begins his first day of college. Pete's body language is drooping as he makes his way through a crowd of students all smiling, waving, and introducing themselves to one another. Pete's wearing a goldenrod-colored jacket and a black pinstripe button-up with SJBs, styling even with his head and heart across town in the hospital. While the other kids are all smiles, Pete Parker is thinking what happens if Aunt May isn't okay after this, but tries to push the thought from his mind, thinking she just has to be okay. While a short distance ahead and Pete's first class, we find... We get one ASM mainstay and two who are sure to go down in the Hall of Fame for the stories they'll be a part of in the future. Flash Thompson is standing stage left in a green suit and black turtleneck. He is styling for a change. With his hands on his hips, his cherry blonde hair in its perfect curls with the S-curl working, and he's talking to a white, wavy-haired redhead guy in a brown suit and red bow tie who's standing stage left with a shock look on his face, his left hand gripping two gray textbooks, his right up and open near his ribs. Between the two men, we've got a stunning, almost platinum blonde young lady, also white, with long eyelashes, High cheekbones, thin eyebrows, and full lips. She's wearing a red blouse and matching skirt and is carrying two great textbooks of her own. The red-haired guy says, Heard a lot about you, Flash. I'm Harry Osborne, And this little lady is the ex-beauty queen of standard high as if you couldn't tell. The platinum blonde chimes in, speaking for herself, channeling the spirit of Madison Avenue. Translation, don't call me baby. Or little lady. She says, the little lady has a name, Flash. It's Gwen Stacy. And I followed your football career all through high school. And Flash, his barrel chest puffed out for maximum peacock effect, he replies, You should have let me know, Gwen. I'd have given you all the facts in person. My people, Harry Osborne and Gwen Stacy are in the building. We get a close up on the gorgeous Gwen Stacy in the next panel as she asks Flash if he thinks he'll be as successful at ESU as he was in high school. Flash, all smiles, confidence, 10 times taller than he is replies that if a woman like Gwen is watching, he won't need the other 10 players on the team. But then, Pete walks up, head down in the next panel, and Flash reverts to his high school self immediately. Running a hand over his face, he says don't tell him that he and Puny Parker have the same class, but he's gotta know that thanks to cosmic and comic timing, of course they would. Not everybody shares his anger though. Gwen gets to look at the Golden Rock Kid, and she says Pete must be brilliant to have won a science scholarship to ESU. Harry picks up some of the salt Flash has already spilled, tosses it over his shoulder, and says Pete looks like any other frosh to him. Translation, a college freshman. That's what they call them? Froshes? Who knew? Flash, despite hating Pete, still knows the rules of etiquette and tells Gwen and Harry he ought to introduce Pete so they can see that guy's a square for themselves. Like, don't take my word for it. You be the judge. He calls Pete over, but Pete, lost in thought, doesn't hear him. A fact Gwen points out. On nine, Flash is in a state of shock watching Pete walk past them. How about that? He ignored us. He ignored us. While Pete, unaware three people are watching him, is still thinking about May in the hospital and how the doctor said he couldn't call before morning. Harry's got a pig-like nose as the camera pulls in tight on him as he says, Some friend you got there, Flash. Flash calls Pete a creep and says that kid is no friend of his. Gwen must have applied some lipstick while we were turning the page because now she's sporting some to match her dress and says Pete seemed nice enough, and maybe he didn't hear them. Gwen Stacy, giving our guy the benefit of the doubt. And, as the first class begins... Class has started, and Pete's front row center as usual, with Flash behind him, and Gwen a seat behind him and stage right. Gwen's watching Pete, and she's thinking, he's not as husky as Flash, but he's brighter and very attractive. Yeah, Pete, looking good, Goldenrod. Meanwhile, Pete's thinking he has to try to forget about Aunt May and concentrate on the professor's words. Then, between glasses. Pete's long striding through the halls as a blond kid in an orange shirt with a giant white O on it he tells a black kid in a brown suit that he knows Peter Parker. He met the kid at registration, and he's a real nice guy. He shouts out to Pete, asking how's it going. But Pete's still in his head, thinking he has time for one quick phone call. So he doesn't hear the kid, and he doesn't respond. In the next panel, the blonde kid scratches his head, shouting. Wow, how long can you be about a fella? What a brush off he gave me. As Harry walks up, chiming in. It wasn't as bad as the one he gave to Flash Thompson. And Flash went all through high school with him. Another redhead sidles up beside the kid in the brown suit, adding that Pete's scholarship must have gone to his head. While, unaware of the stir he's causing, Peter excitedly calls the hospital. We get another gorgeous panel. They are just coming in now. Of Pete in a payphone booth. Gripping the phone with his right hand, his left on the call box, and he's in conversation with the doctor. Still no change? Nothing more you can tell me? Okay. Thanks. Getting no new information, he hangs up the phone and heads to the school library. He sits down at a desk, cracks a book, and begins studying before his next class. Still feeling like he should be at the hospital. But while he's studying, visions of May laid up in the hospital bed creep into his mind. It's no No use. use. I can't can't concentrate. concentrate. All I can think of is poor May so terribly you. Exactly Placing his hand to his head, he continues his sad thoughts. And with all my, with my power, power, with all my, my spider strength, 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 there's nothing, nothing I, I can, can do to help her. Later in the Kim lab. Tin opens to Pete working studiously as he does, his right pressed on a lab counter, his left gripping a test tube holding a sky blue liquid, as Harry Osborne looks on from across the room with Gwen Stacy and a white guy in a snazzy lavender blazer with olive tie and light brown hair. Harry, hand on hip, is pissed. He whispers the one thing he hates are swellheads who thinks they're better than everyone else, staring at the oblivious Pete the whole time. Pete, on his end, is thinking that this is the last class of the day. Then he's going to see Aunt May that all he has to do now is shut everything else out and focus. Harry, not making a very good first impression on us at all, whispers that he thinks they should take Pete down a peg, asking the group around him if they're all game for it. Gwen says she thinks they should mind their own business. A random guy tells her not to be a pill because Parker's been asking for it. Harry says, don't worry, that what he's going to do is just for laughs. Gwen whispers back that she sees why he and Flash Thompson became fast friends. Translation? They're both jerks. But that's not the interpretation Harry has. Grabbing a glass bottle of lime green chemicals, he pulls a stopper off saying both he and Flash hate squares, and there's (laughs) nothing wrong with that. He tells Gwen to go and distract Parker, and we get a great close-up of the beauty Gwen's face and three-quarter profile, staring over her shoulder at Pete. As she smiles and thinks she can't help but feel attracted to him. But she still plays her part. Thinking she can't back out now, she walks up behind Pete and calls his name. But Pete, now gripping a round-bottom flask, is in his zone with the work. And thoughts still on May, he's thinking he should get May a doctor who's a specialist. Gwen, not used to being ignored, I'm sure, shouts at the Goldenrod Kid. Pete! Pete! Don't you hear me? And he can't. Harry, creeping up, whispers that Pete's in his own world and that Gwen doesn't even have to distract him as Gwen keeps shouting. Peter Parker, I asked if I could borrow your pen. Pete, not bothering to take his eyes off the experiment he's conducting like any good scientist, finally does hear her. Still not bothering to turn around, he pulls a pen from who knows where and hands it over his shoulder towards Gwen, who is thunderstruck. She thinks she's never met a boy like this Peter Parker, that he won't even give her a backwards glance, and she snaps, turning her back and walking away in the final panel. Her words come out dripping with stalactite. Thank you very much, Mr. Parker, but I changed my mind. Pete doesn't even hear her. He's still holding the pin over his shoulder, still conducting his experiment, while Harry, literally colored green from all his envy, I'm sure, smiles at his classmates, telling them to watch closely because what he's done is gonna happen any second now. On 11, we see what Harry was up to. As a beaker on Pete's lab desk to the right of him, erupts, sending red sparks and a pink of (laughs) smoke into the room, finally snapping Pete out of his thoughts. He screams, the chemicals ignited, but that's impossible. They couldn't have. They were all completely stable. And the professor is on Pete's case in a heartbeat. He walks up behind Pete and tears into our friend. Parker, this lab is no place for exhibitions. Even though you did win a science scholarship, you will confine yourself to the experiments at hand. Is that quite clear? Pete scratches his head confused, saying yes, sir, and apologizing, wondering the whole time how it happened. Harry and the gang are yucking it up in the next panel. Harry says that this moment will take the swell head down a peg, but Gwen's upset. She says the prank was only supposed to be a joke, not get anyone in trouble. And the Johnny Carson kid must have got it accepted to ESU too because he's here now in an olive sweater telling Gwen not to lose any sleep over it, that this couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Watching all of this in the background frowning, is a black guy in a green sweater, and I imagine he's thinking that Kid Parker didn't do anything except his work and these lame brains just got him in trouble. I wonder if he'll tell Pete later. Either way, Harry doesn't care, but to appease Gwen, He says he'll ask pete if he wants to join their crew for a coke after class and gwent says absolutely that it's the least we can do after getting the kid in trouble with professor warren so if you recall pete's high school science teacher was mr warren and his college professor is also a warren according to the great comics writer jerry conway these men are the same person so pete's high school teacher is now his college professor everyone's moving up in the world back to if warren's ribbing wasn't bad enough Pete's beating himself up in his head. I've never never made made a bonehead mistake like that that. in an experiment before. I must have been daydreaming. Daydreaming Daydreaming my my foot. foot. I just can't get poor on me out of my mind. That's all. Science class ends and Pete's wasting no time getting out of there. Grabbing his goldenrod jacket, he races towards the door as Harry, Gwen, and a blonde kid look on. The blonde kid, sporting a gray sweater and maroon pants, asks Pete if he wants to join them for some soda, but Pete can't and says as much, rushing off. Harry, throwing his blazer back on, tells Gwen they tried and asks if she has any other suggestions. She doesn't. Only a statement about how she doesn't understand him. Pete, that is. Minutes later, outside the science hall, Gwen and Harry run into another familiar face. Flash Thompson is at the foot of the stairs, jerking his thumb over his shoulder with a smile on his face as he says, I just saw the poor man's Einstein rushing past me like he knew where he was going. What happened? Did he see a mouse? Gwen says maybe someone told Pete once that he's too good for the human race. Harry invites Flash to have a coke with them instead. While in another part of the sprawling city... Of course Pete's made it to the hospital. He's sitting on a chair, his hands on his lap, the first smile on his face all day as he talks with Aunt May who's awake and laying in a hospital bed. She's got a brown cover pulled up to her chest and she's all smiles. Pete tells her she's looking much better and should be out of the hospital in no time. May says of course and asks if Pete had a good first day and made any nice new friends. Pete, never wanting May to worry, says yeah. They're a swell bunch of guys and gals. LION! 12 opens to someone from off panel telling Pete visiting hours are over and he has to leave. He takes May's hand and she tells him to run along so he's not up too late studying, and as always, tells him to make sure he eats. Pete tells her he will, and not to worry about a single thing. But Peter Parker loses some of his cheerful demeanor when he leaves the silent room. In the next panel, Pete's talking with a doctor who has his hand on Pete's shoulder. The doctor says he's got a level with Pete, that May's condition isn't good, and they have no idea what's wrong with her. He says May has to stay for more tests but that's all he can tell our hero in the moment. Pete replies, I know you'll do all you can for her, doctor. The doctor says, of course, but at May's age, they can't be too optimistic. But they can't tell May because she can't worry. She has to keep her spirits up at all times. Pete says, sure, but he thinks being cheerful around her when things are looking so dire will be the toughest thing he's ever done. And this kid's battled the Sinister Six. He heads home, grabs the mail, and scans the envelopes as he enters the Forest Hills house. All that mail and no good news i might have known there'd be nothing but bills at a time like this just when i need all the cash i can spare to pay for aunt may's medical expenses in the next panel pete dejected still staring at the bills says maybe he should forget about college that even though his scholarship pays for it in full he still can't afford to go because while he's studying no money's coming in he says if he can get a full-time job then he'd really be able to help with the bills but dropping out of college will break aunt may's heart in a close-up of his face in the next panel The finally hazel-eyed goldenrod kid knows what he needs to do. There's only one other way for me to earn some ready cash, even though it means spending the night away from my studies. And so, minutes later, the dramatic figure of Spider-Man silently stalks the city's rooftops like a shadowy wraith. We get a great panel of the golden liability Spider-Man kneeling, face toward the ground, right arm up in a dramatic superhero pose, a full moon behind his head, and he is thinking about the donuts and dimes accounts. My belt camera is loaded and ready. Now, if I can just be lucky enough to run into a new story worth photographing. If I find something that I can sell to the Daily Bugle early enough, I'll still be able to return and get some studying in tonight. But I've never seen a city more quiet. I know I'm always going on about courting violence, but Pete's life doesn't give him much of a choice, so prowling is allowed in. 13 opens to another dope panel. Sidebar. This issue's artwork is pretty great. Dynamic panels filled with awesome poses from the heroic to the comedic. I'm really enjoying it. Back to. So this page opens to Spidey holding a strand of webbing with his left hand and leaning off the side of a green dome structure as he stares down on the city below, thinking that he never thought he'd find himself wishing for a crime to take place. Somebody get the oars because this guy's paddling down the Nile again. In almost every issue, he's almost wishing for action. It's just this time, he's more hard pressed for it. And, as the long, lonely evening hours crawl by... Spidey's still on patrol swinging above the city, now thinking that Jameson isn't the type to pay for photos of a quiet street. Spidey can't find a jaywalker, a litter bug, or anything else, noting that a car is illegally parked, but that ain't a front-page shot. Finally, as the first faint fingers of dawn creep over the still-slumbering city... My man said as the first faint fingers. Look at that alliteration. Spidey standing on a ledge, his shoulders hunched, staring at the moon thinking he wasted the entire night. He pulls the mask from his face, secret identity be damned, and yawning thinks, Well, it's still a few hours till my first class. Maybe I can get some studying in if I get right home. No matter how strong a fella may be, a night without sleep can sure make him bush. And he's right. I know the feeling, Pete. Sleep is a luxury for the comfortable and seldom a position we find ourselves in. And a few short hours later, We find Pete literally face down in this, our panel OF THE WEEK. Like, nose pressed against his desk face down, his arms sprawled over papers and folders in front of his bedroom window as the sun creeps over the forest hill's trees. But Pete's not knocked out. This is only a momentary respite. Can't concentrate on what I'm reading anymore. If I could only only shut my eyes eyes for a few few minutes. minutes. But it's time for class now. And so... A bone-weary Peter Parker trudges toward his first class to begin what should have been a happy, exciting second day of campus life. Unaware that most of the student body is talking about the new scholarship student who seems to feel he's too good to mingle with his classmates. Pete's personal life has turned him into a leper in college on day two already. This was supposed to be the place where being the smartest guy in the room paid off, but he's already the black sheep of this community. He walks past crowds of students in a long horizontal and an open black vest, white button-up, and SJBs with his head down as students don't bother whispering their thoughts on him. That's him, Mr. Head of 1965. Wonder what makes him think he's so special. While Pete thinks he hopes he can stay awake through his classes. The new college in crowd, that's Gwen, Harry, and Flash, watch him from stage left of the panel. Gwen saying she doesn't think Pete's that bad deep down. Harry tells Gwen to come off it and ask how much more proof she needs. While Flash throws salt, at Pete's feet. I don't get it! Chicks always seem to go for those egg-headed skinny creeps! He never gets it because he doesn't want to. What'd my say? You see what you want to see. Page 14 opens to a caption box. But now, let's change our scene briefly as we pay a visit to that demon newspaperman, Jay Jonah Jameson, publisher of the famous Daily Bugle. We're at 39th Street, 2nd Avenue, Midtown. Limestone building, you can't miss it. And of course, J.J.'s at his desk. White shirt, blue tie, brown slacks, sleeves rolled up, cigar in mouth, as usual. Tie rating! There are papers and pins flying as he screams, News! I want news! Something must be happening somewhere! I can't sell a newspaper without news! Why doesn't something happen? He calls his best reporter into his office in the next panel. That's Frederick Foswell, to be sure, who enters a cigarette in his lips, wearing a brown suit, green fedora, and matching bow tie, and Jameson reams him out. Foswell, you're one of my top reporters. What am I paying you for? Foswell apologizes, saying he only reports the news. He can't make it, and JJ throws both his arms up, popping his top. Don't get clever with me. Clever people make me nervous. Just bring me a story. Clever people make him nervous, he said. He goes on to ask Foswell about the theft of all that scientific equipment that's been going on since last issue, and says there should be a story there before ordering Foswell to go find it. Foswell says he's on his way thinking to himself it's time for Pat the stoolie to hit the scene again. But J.J.'s not done. He walks out of his office next and takes a shot at our friend Pete, screaming at Betty, the damsel, never in distress, in the fire green dress, her bob, flawless as usual. Miss Brown, what about that weak, neat boyfriend of yours? Why hasn't he brought me any new photos lately? Betty says she hasn't seen Pete in a while either, that the Golden Rock kid must be busy with his studies since college started. J.J., his face and profile in the next panel, Tells Betty to call the demon photographer and remind him about J.J., the kindly news publisher who's done so much for the kid in the past. And this is true, but J.J.'s also the guy who flat out refused to give Pete an advance when Mae was in the hospital the first time, way back in ASM number 9. The man called Electro. That's, there ain't no punchlines to fist flying. Here on me and my friend Pete. Back to. Betty looks over her shoulder at Jameson and says she'll do that for him, thinking he's an old hypocrite. Personal feelings aside, Betty's the best girl Friday in the business, and the next panel, we find her at her desk calling Pete's home. She thinks it's strange that there isn't an answer, because May is usually home around this time. Ned walks up in an olive green suit and red tie, his blonde hair combed back as usual. Betty says hello. Ned gets right to business saying he wants to talk to her. He asks if she has an answer for him yet in the next panel, smiling despite Betty's somber look on her face. He's, of course, talking about the question he popped last issue when he asked Betty to marry him. That's ASM number 30, the claws of the cat, or star crossed. Everybody feels the wind blow. Here are me and my friend Pete. Back too. Betty places her right hand over her left and leans forward saying she hasn't been able to make up her mind and she has to be fair to Peter. That she has to speak to him first. So Betty still hasn't given Ned an answer. All oh, that steady, average Joe appeal Betty loves and still can't get the yes? How sad. But Ned's not. Still smiling, he says he understands. As Betty stands, he says he wants her to know that he still hasn't changed his mind he still feels the same way and that he'll keep asking until she says yes. Betty promises to give Ned an answer as soon as she learns something. In the final panel, as we get a close three-quarter profile of the blue-eyed Betty Brant, Ned lowers his head saying, Learn something. You sound very mysterious, Betty. As Betty thinks, I know, I know Peter is keeping, keeping some secrets, secrets for me. I just, I just must, must find out what, out what it is. is. So Betty's on the hunt for Pete's secret and can't say yes to Ned until she knows what that is. Betty, too spicy for the Pepper Brant. And... What of the man called Patch? We find him frequenting the usual underworld haunts where his is a familiar face. Patch is at the 3rd Street Bar surrounded by men of a certain scowling persuasion, thinking things are too quiet that it gives him that good old calm before the storm feeling. But then the alert informer catches a snatch of conversation that gives him pause. A man in a brown fedora with orange pinstripes and a lavender blazer is talking to another in an SJBC captain's hat, matching sweater and gray overcoat as Patch looks on. Brown Fedora has his hand on the sea captain's shoulder as the captain tells him that they're loading nuclear devices onto his ship at Pier 6 tonight before asking the guy what's it to him. Brown Fedora says he was just curious. And I gotta say, nuclear security is pretty loose in the 616. Nobody should be telling anyone when they're loading nuclear anythings. We can say the captain's drunk, but I thought sailors could hold their rum. Either way, is smoking a cigarette and mobbed up as he is knows exactly what's happening right now. That character, character talking to the scene is Foxy, Foxy Briggs. Briggs, he's only he's curious, only curious about, about one thing, thing. robbery. This may, this may be the lead I've been looking look look for. Thus, when Foxy Briggs leaves the waterfront saloon, a shabby looking man with an eye Patch follows after him. Patch follows Briggs down a crowded street doing his best not to lose the man, but having to keep his distance so he's not spotted fails in his attempt. He's lost Briggs in the next panel, cursing himself for being so cautious. Patch thinks he can't tell the police because he doesn't have any evidence and doesn't want to risk the solid relationship as a stoolie he's built by giving them a bad lead. But we leave Patch here for a moment. Honest to gosh, we didn't forget about Spider-Man. You'll see him real soon, we promise. But first, let's return to Empire State U just once more. We're back in the science lab as Pete lights a round bottom flask above a Bunsen burner in the background. In the foreground, Gwen Stacy's stalking him, thinking that this guy's the only one who's never given her a tumble. She thinks that this is a challenge no girl can resist, and seeing Pete leaving, thinks this is her chance to get to know him better. While Pete, great book in left hand, goldenrod jacket in his right, is thinking those same old thoughts. If I get to the the hospital 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 early, I'll be able to visit longer with Aunt May. In the final panel, Gwen makes her move. Hello there, Peter. I'm glad I bumped into you. Do you have a minute? Pete, not even bothering to chance a glance at her, replies, I'm awfully sorry. You will have to excuse me. I'm in a real big hurry. Can't stop now. And keeps it pushing. My man's channeling the white rabbit. Translation? No time to say hello, goodbye. I'm late, I'm late, I'm late. On 16, hands on her hips, right eyebrow arched. Gwen makes a solemn oath. Why the unmitigated nerve of him? Nobody gives Gwen Stacy the brush off that way. You, young man, are going to regret that. I promise. Has Pete just made another enemy? Time will tell and at the hospital once again. Pete's standing over May's bedside once more. He's smiling, but she's not. She asks if he's getting enough rest because he looks rather tired. Pete says, worry about yourself, Aunt May. I'm fine. And May says she's fine, again, both of them lying. In the next panel, Pete's in profile speaking with a doctor who tells him that the tests still aren't complete, but they're narrowing things down. Pete says he's almost afraid to hear the final verdict before leaving the hospital. Thus, once again, just as we promised, The amazing figure of Spider-Man swings over the city, grimmer, more serious, more concerned than ever before. Spidey's back on a web line zipping above the city thinking he can't afford to fail at getting pictures because his cash is almost gone. He sees a light flashing on the street below and thinks it could be a trap, but he can't afford not to check it out. He descends upside down gripping a web line between his legs on the next panel, wondering who the man in the green suit and brown pork pie hat is. We know it's Patch, but Spidey has never met him. Pat says that this is lucky because he needs the webhead's help. And Spidey, confusing the stoolie for a beggar, says, Sorry, mister. I'm flat broke myself. Pat says, Relax, this isn't a touch, which I assume is slang for begging in the 1960s, before telling Spidey there's going to be a robbery at Pier 6 tonight. He says he doesn't have any evidence to tell the police about it yet, but Spidey could check it out. As Spidey ascends his webline right side up in the final panel, Pat says if he's right about the tip-off, he wants Spidey to give him some credit. Spidey replies, Sure, sure, i remember you in my will. And I'm feeling like Spidey doesn't have a lot of respect for this guy right off the bat, because Spidey helps because he can, and this guy's helping for credit. Still, he thinks he should check it out because he has nothing to lose. And at Pier 6. To open 17, we see four of the Purple City Goon Squad and Aqualungs rising from the river near the pier towards a large freighter in the dead of night. Number two. Nice to meet you, number two. Hanging back as he often does, tells them to move in fast and silent and to use their suction cups to scale the ship. In the next panel, they begin climbing the ship, one goon thinking the master planner never slips up, another shouting take your positions, and number two shouting for them to attack as ordered by the master planner. Two goons hop over the railing and onto the deck of the ship, pulling their gas guns and spraying the deck hands there, dropping them instantly, while number two and two other goons climb the pier and surround three ship hands on both sides, dropping them with the lime green gas as well. Number two shouts that the master planner was right about the skeleton crew. The goon behind him says they'll be gone with their haul before anyone even knows they're here. But that's not going to happen, because in the next panel, Spidey, suited and booted, is web-swinging onto the scene above their head, screaming. Not if I can help it, gents! Thinking that his tipter was right, and he's glad to have listened. The goons on the ground, standing next to a dome-shaped who knows what, wrapped in cargo net and attached to a cargo boom, look up, Shouted Spider-Man, and of course, we got action! two of the men unload a new concentrated gas. The exact same lime green color. I guess they just put more lime green in it, who knows. At Spidey, calling him an interloper, saying they'll stop him this time as our hero falls from the sky towards them. Spidey tells him not to bet on it, thinking that he's prepared for them now. He lands onto the dome shaped who knows what as a goon shouts. The gas didn't work, something's wrong, ugh. Right before Spidey bounces off of the (gasps) dome and sends the man flying with a left no-look punch, his body covered in gas, shouting. You can say that again, playmate, and it'll be a lot wronger before I'm done with you. Number two, taking cover behind the dome, pops up spraying more gas at our hero, thinking that Spidey was the one thing the master planner didn't plan for, and they've gotta stop him somehow. Despite the master planner's seeming genius, he's coming off kind of arrogant. Didn't the man say he would plan for Spidey going forward? So why are the goons still surprised that Spidey's shown up? He's not much of a master planner right now, is he? Meanwhile,
1: high above the fighting teenager,
0: 18 opens from the vantage point of the cargo boom's operating room, aboard the ship, as a henchman fiddles with the controls, thinking, Now that I've game control of the cargo boom, boom I'll, I'll use to finish, off, finish Spider-Man. off Spider-Man. He's literally going to lower the boom. While on the ground, Spidey does the exact same thing, dropping another villain with a left cross. But the masked criminal had reckoned without our hero's amazing spider sense And the caption box tells no lies. The goon swings the dome towards Spidey in the next panel, who, in shades of the page one action shot, leaps backwards towards the strange cargo and grabs it with both hands, thinking he's just going to leap aboard for the ride. The goon in the operating room realizes his mistake as Spidey, legs wide, still gripping the cargo, kicks two henchmen, sending them reeling backwards, screaming, Don't rush it, boys. I'll get to all of you. Releasing the dome in the next panel and landing in a beautiful kip-up, Spidey spots two more henchmen pushing crates into the river and thinking they're trying to get rid of the evidence, he shouts, Holy group, wait for me. He does a side flip into the next panel, and now, his right foot and left leg pressed against the freighter, flips a crate, pitting the box to the pier, shouting for the purple clack goons not to thank him because it'll just make him blush. In another beautiful panel, Spidey's upside down, in the air, his right hand bracing on the crate he's pinned, so he must have covered five feet in the gutter between panels, and agility on Best Ever, pins the second crate to the floor with his webbing. Of course the henchman pulls a gun shouting they've got to stop the webhead once and for all. Spidey, quipping, replies that this is a fine way to talk about the friendliest crime fighter in town. Then, before Spidey can make another move, Lagoon in the operating room has mastered the cargo boom. He's released the dome from the net and swings the net towards our still upside down hero, who, now surrounded by the net falling around him, still upside down, bracing on the second crate with his left hand shouts, If I didn't know better, I'd classify your actions as increasingly hostile. 19 opens to the now-captured Spider-Man's body in the cargo net as the boom swings him over open water. But Spidey's fearless and still refuses to shut up, saying these boys have got to know how much he loves frolicking in the surf. But Spidey can't take a swim just yet. Gripping the cargo net easily in a goldenrod background, he says he still has things to attend to. And falling, sprays a line of webbing at the boom, swinging free of the net as a henchman gives the play-by-play amazed. Spidey replies, one thing I'll say for you boys, you're observant. Rocketing forward on his web line, he thinks he's got to get to work. Pete Parker's work, actually, because he needs pictures of these bozos before they escape. But for all his feet, Spidey's not quick enough to make his move, because no sooner than he thinks it, all the henchmen dive into the water, escaping his arachno-justice. And Spidey doesn't follow. I don't know why he doesn't follow. Swinging back towards shore in a dock warehouse in the next panel, he thinks... With all those gizmos they're wearing, they, they have, have the, the advantage, advantage if I going after them in them the water, water before spotting a squad car in the distance and the stoolie's Patch standing beside it. In the next panel, we've got the red-haired rookie cop, bow Charlie on the scene with gun drawn as he checks out one of the dock workers who's now regaining consciousness as Patch stands with his back to them both. Charlie says Patch was right. Patch scans the area for Spidey but says he sees no sign of the King of Swing now. But Spidey isn't gone. He's watching Patch and the officer from the roof of a nearby warehouse Wondering who the man is, what he's got to do with all this, and lamenting the fact that all he got out of this night was a lot of arachnocardio. On the ground, Charlie tells Patch he can go, and Spidey is stressed. Still scoping the scene in the final panel, he thinks, I should have tried to snap my picture sooner. JJJ isn't about to pay me anything for some shots of a dumpy doc with a few policemen standing around. Rats, this just isn't my week. On 20, we see how Spidey was able to keep talking his smack while fighting this time. He lifts his mask, and covering his nose and mouth is a white oval-shaped device with horizontal lines running along the middle, as he thinks, the only good thing that happened is that I stopped them from stealing whatever they were after, and the device I ripped up to out with their gas guns really worked. Spidey, no rest for the weary. Up all night studying, worried about Aunt May, he still has time to create, as he calls it, my dry chemical filter. He thinks it succeeded in allowing him to breathe during the fight, and thinks he's glad that he chose to be a science major because he doesn't know what he'd do without it. Sprinting up the roof with the moon dancing in the background in the next panel, he thinks he doesn't have any time to pat himself on the back because he still may have some time to get to more news photos, hoping he remembers to snap him next time. Meanwhile, in a fantastic edifice whose presence under the river is still unsuspected by any save the Master Planner's men, we're outside of the mysterious underwater hideout as the Master Planner tirades inside. Spider-Man's interference has caused me to lose precious time. I could have used that ship's cargo for my research on radiation effects. We finally get a look inside the base, all smooth angles and curves in red, pink, brown, and orange. There are futuristic orbs of electricity dancing between them, but we still can't see the Master Planner as he continues his monologue. If my ray continues to function well, and I can unlock the hidden secrets of atomic radiation, I'll be able to rule the world in time. The camera zooms out of the hideout next, and the Master Planner continues. But I shall tolerate no further meddling by Spider-Man. Even he has not the power to stop me, though he and I have met before. If he crosses my path again, our next encounter will be his last. So we don't know much about the Master Planner, but we know two things. He loves to hear himself talk, and he's tussled with the Zingaroo Shuffler before. We'll have to wait for more on the Master Plan, however, because now the story shifts to a laboratory where two doctors are up burning the midnight oil. They're both in white short sleeve lab gear. One's a redhead with a receding hairline. The other's a bit older with a black comb over. And Red is asking Comover if he's sure. He says there may have been a mistake. Comover says, nah, that's just wishful thinking. Red's not taking any chances. He says, before they tell the woman the news, they have to run the test one more time. Comover, holding a vial and staring at it with sadness in his eyes, says, very well, but the results are sure to be the same. All the evidence points to the same inescapable conclusion. And in the final panel, as Spidey Webb swings above the city in search of photographs we know he won't get, the doctor finishes his thought. The poor woman can't last much longer. It sounds like whoever this woman is, she's on borrowed time. The issue ends with a caption box. Next issue, we shall learn the fate of Peter Parker's Aunt May, as well as the identity of the master planner. Because you're our kind of reader, we offer this admonishment. You must not miss it. Enough said. And we're out. This issue had great art all throughout, and I think it did a great job of juggling the many different plot threads it unfolded. The master planner and company were successful on one out of two heists for nuclear materials, so I can only imagine what they're getting into. Aunt May is getting worse, and her declining state has turned Pete into a pariah at Empire State University. And we've got two new characters who, I can absolutely promise, will affect Peter's life for years to come. Great action, great art, Great pacing. You can hardly ask for more, but I'm going to because I know what comes next. That's the main episode this week. And that's true. That's the main episode. But there is more <laughs> me and my friend Pete available for your listening pleasure right now. If you support this show on Patreon.com slash HSPP. Patrons get a bonus show every time we drop a new episode, where I run through comic books from all over the multiverse of comics, Past and present, from Marvel to DC to all points in between. This week, we're running through Brilliant, Volume 1, Number 3, from Icon Comics. Question What happens when you break the cardinal rule of science and experiment on yourself? Well, if you're young and brilliant, a whole lot of superpowers, a whole lot of money, and luckily for us, a whole lot of action. If we've got comics, we've got history, and I'll be your guide through it all. Join us. Next episode on Me and My Friend Pete, we've got the return of Dr. Curtis Kildare Connors we find out who the master planner is. Pete confronts Ned Leeds, and Spider-Man tears the city apart on a personal quest to save his dear Aunt May. It's a golden liability issue, setting up one of Spidey's greatest moments, if I do say so myself, and I always say so myself. Miss it if you wanna. I dare you. This podcast is completely listener supported, and your support keeps this crazy train on the tracks. I'm truly grateful you keep coming back, and more grateful you allow me to be the conductor. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, a special thanks to the home team. Parker's Dirty Dozen. Sign up now. Vote on bonus episodes. Make it a Baker's. If you sign up before ASM number 50, you'll receive a special thank you lapel pin for being a patron during season two. Let's keep these good times rolling. You won't regret it. You got questions? Send them to me and my friend Pete at gmail.com and I'll go digging for the answers. Follow us on Instagram at MNMFP underscore podcast. The panel of the week can be found at Patreon.com slash HSPP. All that said, that's all that said. Please like, please An comment, please iTunes, share, don't please you? take care, please think of the world and be true to yourself. And remember, with great power, you know the rest. Make sure you're being responsible. I'm out of here.